And just like that, we are back walking with Dante. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. If you're not listening to this podcast, IRT, as they say, then you don't know that we've been on a hiatus for a few weeks for the holiday break between 2021 and 2022. But we are now back in full swing at Canto 21 of Inferno. If you want to know really what all that means, it means we're slow walking with Dante through his masterwork comedy. We have come down through Inferno to Canto 21. We are about to enter the fifth evil pouch, the fifth of the Malabolgia. Oh, and this one's a corker. In fact, one of the longest episodes in all of Inferno. We're going to set off to it in all of its glory. Lines 1 through 21 of Canto 21 of Inferno. We might as well get to it. In this way, from bridge to bridge, while talking about things my comedy isn't bothered to sing, we went along. We'd reached the apex when we stopped to be able to see into the next cleft of these evil pouches and the next futile blubbering. I saw that it was amazingly dark as the Venetians in their arsenal boiled the gluey pitch all through the winter to seal the boards of any unsound ships because they cannot sail then and so instead Someone works on a new hull, and someone caulks the slats of a ship that's made a few too many voyages. Someone hammers together the prow, and someone else the stern. Others fashion the oars, and still others twist the ropes. Someone else sews up the jib and the mainsail. In just this way, if not by fire, but by divine craft, the thick pitch boiled away down below, clinging to the banks on both sides. I saw the pitch for sure, but I didn't see anything in it except the bubbles levitated by the boiling, all seething up and then settling down, deflated. That's where we're going to stop, which is the vision of this evil pouch. This is a bit of a commented on passage. They all are, aren't they? Aren't they all that way? But this is particularly commented on for two problems. One, Dante again names his work comedy, and two, that long and involved and overly complex, well, you can hear my interpretive stance, overly complex simile about the Venetian arsenale. Let's just get to it. Canto 21 starts in this way from bridge to bridge while talking about things my comedy isn't bothered to sing. We went along. And I'm going to stop here, not on the word comedy. You might think that's exactly where I was headed, the title of the work. But no, I want to talk about this from bridge to bridge. It's intriguing that back in Canto 18, when we first came to the evil pouches, the Malabolgia, they were referred to, these structures that go over the pits, as ridges. And the metaphor used was like bridges that come out of a castle over moats. So the bridge was the metaphor, while these things seemed to be much more craggy, rocky, ridge-like structures. You'll notice that the metaphor has now become the actuality from bridge to bridge. We could get 
all post-structural with this. And you know, I love to get postmodern and post-structural with things. And we could claim, if we wanted to, that the poetic metaphoric space has slowly morphed into realism. That is, the like, what something is like, it's like a bridge, has become the is. It is a bridge. And that all of that has to do with the creation of the art of poetry, which is able to take metaphoric space and make a reality claim about it. It's a lovely, wild postmodern thought. It's a metaverse thought. It's a nicely complex thought, but there might be an easier explanation. And believe me, I prefer the kind of postmodern one, but there might be an easier explanation to this, and that is that the poet himself, Dante, he's coming to see it less as a geologic structure, ridges running down like a spider web over ditches, and to see it as more architectural. These spans that go over the evil pouches are no longer just kind of rocky ridges on us, you know, pieces of a spider web, but are in fact constructed bridges. He needs that for the plot, that architectural detail that's coming, and he might be more and more seeing that. I told you early on in 18 that over time, fraud moves from being, uh, let's say, more geologic to more architectural. And this is one of those points that I would show. It may seem like I'm stewing a bit over nothing, but I think it's kind of important to either watch the poem in process or, if you want to get crazy, to say that the poem is being super postmodern in that the metaphoric space is becoming the actual space. You know I love that. You know I can't let that go. But still, there might be an easier explanation here in a developmental hypothesis about the poem as a whole. And what is that poem? Ah, well, he names it again. Comedy. In this way, again, it starts from bridge to bridge while talking about things my comedy isn't bothered to sing, we went along. The last time that Dante the poet named the poem was way back in Canto 16 at the site of Garion, the monster of fraud. And you remember Garion floats up, swims up through the murk and beaches itself, himself, itself, I don't know, itself onto the side of the cliff. And Dante says, I swear on my comedy, I really saw the beast of fraud. And if you want to go back and look at those episodes, you can watch me dance a hundred dances about naming the work in the face of fraud. How can it be that Dante actually saw this beast, Garion, which he has made up from various mythological figures? Okay, that's the last time it was named. Now it's named again, and it's probably here named for other reasons. If you remember... Back in the previous canto, in canto 20, after Virgil has corrected his own poem, the Aeneid, after he has rewritten the Aeneid, he refers to his poem as a high tragedy. That's at line 113 of canto 20. And it seems as if this word is here inserted to contrast what's happening in Dante's poem with what's happening in Virgil's poem. And there may be a link to that last line, line 130 of Canto 20 of the previous uh, Canto, where I told you Dante uses a word in troche, which he himself has prohibited as too vulgar for decent poetry. 
It may be this too is a reference back to that last word in troche at the end of Canto 20. In, in other words, it seems that he is here lining out what he's doing. And let's ask ourselves, what is he doing? Many of the early commentators are very troubled by the title comedy. Why? Well, because comedy is low, it's vulgar, it's silly. Think about medieval plays. Think about what you know about Chaucer and the Fablio. Think about what you know about dirty jokes from the Middle Ages and dirty manuscript uh, illuminations from the Middle Ages. Comedy's low, it's vulgar, it's in the vernacular. All of those things make what seem like problems for the early commentators because, of course, this is a divine poem, a poem about the journey to God. How can then we use this word that's usually associated with, well, crash jokes and vulgar jokes and funny bits, especially in medieval folklore plays and medieval town square plays in which, you know, people end up half naked and caught in bed. How can we use this word? Guido da Pisa, a very early commentator in 1327, remember Dante dies in 1321, so Guido da Pisa's commentary is super early in 1327, says that the title is apt. Um, he's one of the few early commentators that doesn't have any problem with the title because in the end, this poem moves from misery to happiness. We start out in that dark wood in Canto 1 of Inferno. We're in a state of misery. And by the time we end up at the top of Paradiso, we will be actually in a state of ecstasy, in a state of, oh, dare I say it, sexual bliss. But we have a long way to go before we get up there to the top of Paradiso. So let's just say right now that it moves from misery to happiness. Guido de Pisa seems contented with it, but another early commentator, Benvenuto, in 1380, is extremely uncomfortable with this title. He thinks that Dante is a little bit off here, and Benvenuto can get around it. He doesn't want to correct Dante, seeing Dante as a great poet, but he can get around it by saying, well, what Dante means by comedy is the vernacular Florentine. It's a, it's a reference to the vernacular language used here, the medieval Florentine. Of course, Benvenuto wouldn't call it medieval, but we can call it medieval Florentine. And that vernacular language is what he's talking about when he names his work and not anything about the genre or about what expectations the work puts down on us. We're going to want to think more about that, particularly in Cantos 21, 22, and the start of 23, where, in fact, we most fully see comedy as comedy. But let's just leave it alone right now and say that a third early commentator, Francesco Tabuti, in 1385, is also troubled by Dante's title. He doesn't like it, but he comes to this conclusion, <laughs> Tabuti does, that Dante is able to entitle his work whatever he likes. <laughs> and that's so, all right, well, I don't like it, but Dante did it, so I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with Dante titling the work what he did. That's kind of a strange place to come to, to say, well, I guess the guy's entitled to title his work whatever he likes. It's, it's funny for me because, of course, I work in publishing in my other life, publishing cookbooks. And I know that the last thing that any author is ever in control of is the title of their own work. And in fact, 
Dante is not in control of the title of his own work, although twice. This is the second time, and by the way, this is the last time that the work is named comedy. It will never be referred to again by this designation. Still, nonetheless, Dante calls it comedy, and somehow we all still call it the divine comedy. We don't even let Dante have his title because Boccaccio added that adjective divine. Why qualify it? Because Boccaccio was uncomfortable. Because comedy, again, is low, slapstick. Think about, I don't know, this is really silly, but think about if I were to make the journey to heaven happen with the Three Stooges. I know this is absurd, but just pretend for a minute that I use the Three Stooges as my major character. in a journey to see the face of God. Okay, it's ridiculous, right? And it makes you a little uncomfortable. And you think to yourself, okay, that's so stupid. Why would you do that? You you surely would want an actor of gravitas to take on the journey to see the face of God, to learn from his misery, to come out of it, to essentially, over the course of comedy, to be converted until he can finally see the face of God and reformed until he can see the face of God. But my example holds for exactly the discomfort of Boccaccio and the Pisa and others. You're using this word comedy and it's associated with, I don't know, I Love Lucy. <laughs> we don't have to go as far as the Three Stooges or the Dick Van Dyke Show or The Good Place or Arrested Development or Bojack Horseman. And we're using these characters. Think about that, Bojack Horseman on a journey to see the face of God. I would actually like to see that. Someone write that. Think about that as the discomfort with the word and the reason we still attach Boccaccio's adjective of divine to it. Why? Let us let Dante name his work. Comedy. Sure, it seems weird, like naming a work epic, but after all, it is what he does, so let's let him do it. In this way, from bridge to bridge, while talking about things my comedy isn't bothered to sing, we went along. Let's think about that for just a minute. Talking about things, my comedy isn't bothered to sing. The last time this happened in any full way was back in Canto Four in Limbo. Remember when Dante comes to the classical poets and becomes one of their number, becomes sixth amongst them with Homer leading the way? He says at that point that they walked on toward that castle in Limbo, talking of various things that, you know, aren't really going to get mentioned in comedy in this work. He doesn't say the word comedy but aren't going to get mentioned in this poem. There was a moment of reticence. Here's another moment of reticence. Notice that it's both times with a classical poet, there with a group of them, here just with Virgil. Notice that both times it's setting up something rather dramatic. In other words, there's a silence before there is suddenly something, and there is going to be something very dramatic in Cantos 21, 22, and the first part of 23. So it's, set, it's this silence before something very dramatic. The esteemed Dantista Barolini claims that this is a realism technique. That is, by indicating that the comedy can't include everything, Dante is upping the realism claim of the comedy. I'm not sure I fully buy that argument. Instead, I think it's important here to see a lapse or an openness or a gap, especially 
after we have had so many corrected poets and classical figures in Canto 20. So much correction went on there, if you remember Canto 20 and the soothsayers, that here we suddenly have a lapse, a silence, a gap, something that, in fact, is beyond correction. That might play more importantly here. That is, comedy is not a matter of telling everything, but instead, sometimes you have to, as they say, CYA, or you have to revert to silence. Here, dropping a giant word, comedy, while otherwise staying silent. Curious, right? What happens next is perhaps more so. They reach the apex of that bridge and they stop to see down into the next cleft of these evil pouches in the Florentine. It's Malabolcha, the word itself. So they stop and look down in Malabolcha or evil or foul pouch or foul purse. And the next futile blubbering, that is the futile crying of the sinners who are lamenting their fate, but it's really in vain to lament your fate when you're in hell. And I saw that it was amazingly dark, the poem says. This seems another contrast to Canto 20. Remember in Canto 20 with the soothsayers, they come to the top of the bridge and the soothsayers are walking along with their heads twisted back. And I don't want to get into again whether they're walking forward or backward and which way their head is facing. So let's just skip it and say they're walking along with their heads twisted back. But the point is Dante can see them. The pilgrim sees them come round the bend of the circle and he sees them approaching him. So there seems to be some kind of luminosity in the last uh, Malabolge in the last evil pouch, whereas here it's just exceptionally dark. Again, calling us back to Canto 20. I think it's important to watch what happens in the fifth pouch and realize that it is being poetically connected to the fourth pouch again and again. But we'll talk more about that after we get over this giant simile. So here it starts, as the Venetians in their arsenal, the arsenale, if you've been to Venice, as the Venetians in their arsenal boil the gluey pitch all through the winter to seal the boards of any unsound ships because they cannot sail then. And so instead, someone works on a new hull and someone caulks the slats of a ship that's made a few too many voyages. Someone hammers together the prow and someone else the stern. Others fashion the oars and still others twist the ropes. Someone else sews up the jib and the mainsail in just this way if not by fire but by divine craft the thick pitch boiled away down below clinging to the banks on both sides that is a tremendously long simile i mean seriously 12 lines there that we go on and on about the venetian arsenale and how ships are put together what is going on here that this is so long Castelvetro, the Renaissance critic in 1570, is probably the first critic to say this simile is simply unhinged. Castelvetro takes Dante to task for this simile, saying that the 
poet essentially loses control and loses full control of what's going on here with so many elements. Uh, it is astounding, right? Caulking and nailing and hammering and oars and ropes and jibs and mainsails. And you're only talking about pitch that's boiling away the black pitch at the bottom of the pouch. That's what you're talking about. And yet, oh, where, where are we? We're out in all of these details about putting ships together. And furthermore, and we can take Castelvetro point here even further. Um, Venetians sailed in the winter. It's not as if the winter stopped them from putting their ships on the water. Maybe they did more repairs in the winter, but it's not as if in the Adriatic and in the Venetian lagoon, they couldn't get out in their ships, maybe occasionally when it froze. But seriously, Venetians sailed around even in the winter and fought some pretty important battles, even in the winter. So it's it's not exactly as if they can't sail, which is another point of going off the hooks here. What is going on here? Well, we might say that we're being nudged in the ribs because the simile is really strange. Think about what this simile says. This pitch at the bottom of the pouch is like that pitch, like they boil in Venice to fix the ships. That's insane. Pitch is like pitch. That's not a simile. That's an equation. That's A equals A. That's a tautology. In fact, this whole simile is a bit of a tautology with one change. That is, it's not by fire, but by divine craft. But otherwise, it functions as simply A equals A. It's not very evocative. Remember back on the shores of Acheron, when the souls are gathering to get into Karen's boat, and we have that, oh, unbelievably evocative and historic simile about the leaves and falling and scattering and the way they gather on the bank. Oh, that is a true complex, emotionally charged simile. This is just strange. This is saying a leaf is like a leaf. This leaf is like that leaf. This branch is like that branch. This person's like that person. It's not really a fully developed simile. Perhaps this is part of the comedy. Perhaps there is a literary joke here, and therefore more about fraud and the nature of poetry and art. Perhaps Dante is nudging you in the ribs and saying, hey, <laughs> catch this, you know, uh, poetry is all about metaphoric space and poetry is all about metaphor itself. So here's one for you, A equals A. And thus we kind of have an insider literary joke. Maybe. I kind of like that idea, but there's a second idea. And to say this one, I have to kind of talk about what sin is being punished here in the fifth evil pouch. This sin is baratry. It's an old word in English, baratry. Uh, Barolini claims that baratry is not just the selling of political offices, uh, in other words, giving me money so that I can make you a city council member. You know, uh, it's not just that Barolini claims, but it's also kickbacks and bribes. It's a whole system of being kind of, mm, let's just say, a mafia don or a boss and taking all kinds of kickbacks and bribes in exchange for for political favors. And she's probably right. Our word today would probably be graft. If that's the sin, as we will see, that is being punished in this pouch, then what's happening here is an image of people working together without bribes. This is Venice, a rising power in Dante's day, already 
a mighty naval power, but a rising imperial power. Dante apparently is seeing Venice in rather idyllic terms. That is, they're all together working on these ships, caulking and building and hammering and sewing and making the sails and making these ships good. And we're not sure if this is a military ship or a commercial ship. And with Venice, it would be very hard to tell. But the point here is that there is some kind of, I'm going to use very modern words here, some kind of proletarian fantasy, some kind of fantasy about the lower classes working together in a constant way to reinforce the state, Venice's power, whether militaristically or commercially, but still all doing their own job Baratry is often a sin of the ownership class. You have to be in power to get a bribe, to accept a bribe, to give a bribe. You generally have to be seeking power or yourself wealthy in some way. This simile is about, we would now say, the lower classes, the non-ownership classes building these boats. And there may be a way in which Dante is saying, hey, this is social cohesion. You and I may squirm a bit under this, but this is what it looks like. Everybody doing their job, everybody happy to do their job, everybody working away to make the ships that build the wealth of the town that allow the leaders to engage in baratry. This is what it looks like to have a fully functioning society. Everybody knows their place and everybody does their own job. It sounds Marxist almost. That's why I use the word proletarian fantasy. It, it has this kind of idea that, you know, I'm going to do my bit and you do your bit and we're all just going to be happy together doing our bits and we're not going to worry about oh I don't know what being paid so there is this kind of wild idyllic proletarian fantasy and I bring this up now because it's going to play out in the canto ahead it plays out with this simile the simile is difficult it's muddied. It's a bit unhinged. Maybe we can take Castelvetro's point. It has many moving parts in the end to just say A equals A. There probably are all kinds of poetic strategies going on behind it, some of which I've lined out for you, perhaps a joke, perhaps a comment on comedy, perhaps a, a notion of fraud, that is metaphoric space and poetry connected together in some way here, but also perhaps about political power and perhaps it is Dante after all, all of it together. And it all comes out after all of that storm and drong, it comes out exactly where it started. I saw the pitch for sure, but I didn't see anything in it except the bubbles levitated by the boiling, all seething up and then settling down again. So we're back. We're back again with the blankness. We're back again with the blackness and the pitch. After all of this, we're back in which we restate basically what we already saw. We just restated again after that long simile without moving forward. I think that lack of motion right there is going to become important. We are about to descend into one of the most chaotic scenes in Inferno 
if not simply the most chaotic scene in all of Inferno. It lasts for two and a third cantos. It is only rivaled by Filippo Argenti being torn apart in sticks way back in Canto 8. We're about to descend to one of the most vulgar, hysterical, funny, and chaotic scenes in all of comedy. And right here, we come to a dead stop. That might be important, but to find out why, you're going to have to come back because we're going to have to go on in the passage to lines 22 and further. So, you know the deal. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. I'm glad we're back. If you're not doing the Walking with Dante in real time with some of us, you don't know we've been away, but mm, I'm glad you're all here anyway, no matter where you are. Please connect with me on Twitter. That's the easiest way everyone seems to be finding me, at Mark Scarborough, my own name on Twitter. You can find me there. We can connect and talk more about Dante. You know I'm obsessed. I'm glad you're obsessed, too. And welcome back to what is the craziest episode in all of Inferno. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. See you next time.